come now to our reading, and it is from Jude, chapter uh, starting at verse 17. I'm just going to read verse 1 as a reminder to people as well that uh, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I read that just to remind you that, that Jude was very close to Jesus. This is a guy that knew him intimately and knew him really, really well and, and was there during his life. Um, so this is actually a letter um, from Jude. And it's entitled, from verse 17, A Call to Persevere. But, dear friends... Remember what the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow their mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear. Hating even the clothing stained by corrupt flesh. And then the doxology. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. I'm just going to pray for Mark as he comes up. Lord, we pray quite simply that we can hear you this morning speaking through what Mark has to say as he shares your word. Be with Mark now as he, he faithfully shares what he's prepared and help him, Lord, to, uh, to bring you into a, a clearer light and a clearer understanding for us as we listen, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Bill. <clears throat> this is one of those occasions where eight verses is jam-packed full of content, so it was no struggle kind of getting to two hours' worth of sermon, so um, buckle up, everyone. So last week, John brought us the first section of Jude's letter, where we heard that Jude felt compelled to write because false teachers have secretly slipped in among his readers, he condemns the false teachers for their wicked lifestyle. They are sexually immoral, scornful of authority and selfish. They are grumblers and fault finders who follow their own evil desires and boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. The people he has been writing to have been infiltrated by those who are denying Christ and his teaching and saying that because of God's grace, they could sin as they pleased. Jude then says a number of less complimentary things about these infiltrators. He portrays them as hell-bound sinners in league with some of the worst sinners of all of Scripture. Korah, Cain, the fallen angels, Balaam, the judged Israelites of the wilderness, the devil himself, and the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. However, it's important to understand this concerning false teachers. They exist. Their teaching can be attractive and dangerous, but their condemnation is certain. It was true then, and it's true now. So Jude gives us a call to stand up for the Christian faith. 
He exposes the danger, the fruitlessness, and the final destiny of these false teachers. And we must do the same. You see, like us, Jude lived in an age which preferred toleration to truth. We can expect people of every generation to, te- to defect from truth and mor- morality, and that's true today. Today, the church must guard against temptation to welcome heresy in the name of tolerance. So Jude's directions are helpful for today's Christians as they were helpful for Jude's readers. So let's see what he has to say. Jude starts his section of this letter, of this part of the letter, with a small but important word, and it's easy to miss. But, he says, but. I've just described to you the false teachers, but you, my dear friends, you know the truth. Remember, he says, don't just recall, really consider it. Think deeply about it. Remember that the apostles predicted that these scoffers would arise, people that would mock and ridicule the faith, people that would come to undermine your faith and to divide you. Remember what you've been told by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times, in the days between the ascension and the glorious return of Christ, these people will be with us. These people who follow their ungodly desires will be with us. In Acts 20, Paul tells the elders from Ephesus that savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. And in 1 Timothy 4, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Jude tells them these people will come to divide them because they, feel they follow mere natural instincts. They do not have the spirit. They do not have the spirit. Genuine Christians have the spirit. These people are not Christians. They divide the church by setting themselves up as something superior. They divide the church into spiritual and worldly members. They think they are the spiritual ones, but really they are of the world. We need to remember there are only two types of people that exist in this world. Those who are real Christians and those who are not. But not all people who claim to follow Christ actually do. Some just give the appearance that they are Christians. But what they say, what they say they believe in, what they try to convince others to believe, their actions, their behaviours, these things give them away. So Jude then gives instructions as to what they should do, how they should respond. Firstly, they are to keep themselves in God's love. But you, dear friends, that word again, but you, you are not them. He says they must keep themselves in God's love. And this complements what he said of their position back in verse 1. They have been called who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. As those he has called, as those who are loved, God will keep them. He will preserve them. 
In John 6, Jesus himself says, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. However, it's also true that once we've realized that we're unworthy objects of the love of God through Jesus Christ, then we are challenged to respond in love. And that love must be shown in behavior. John 15 shows that such a response is the way to remain in the consciousness of God's love. It says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. Not to keep his commands will only deaden the heart to God's love. So how do we do it? How do we respond? How do we keep ourselves in God's love? Jude gives us the answer. He spells out three ways. By Christian growth in the life of faith, prayer in the spirit, and looking forward to the completion of God's work in us. Bill reminded us of the three-legged stool, and he almost did my sermon there, I think. By Christian growth in the life of faith, prayer in the spirit, and looking forward to the completion of God's work in us. So let's take a look. Firstly, by building yourself up in the most holy faith, which means growing doctrinally strong, engaging in a building process of personal and corporate development. They are to build themselves up in your most holy faith, the full content of Christian belief, the full content of the divine revelation. A Christian must study the scriptures if they're to grow in the faith. And it's a faith which is most holy because it is given by God. It is most holy because it's utterly different, set apart from all others. It's unique in its message and it teaches moral transformation It is a faith which, rightly applied, leads to holy living. And here Jude mirrors what he said back in verse 3. There Jude urges his readers to contend for the faith. Now the word contend was applied to athletic contrasts like like wrestling. The same Greek word is translated competes in 1 Corinthians. They were to contend for the content of Christian belief. They were to compete for it, to wrestle for it. The truth as handed down from Christ and his apostles. They were to uphold Christ's atoning death in the place of sinners. They were to hold to the truth of Christ's resurrection. To contend for salvation by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. They were to hold fast to the fact that Christ will come again. And, especially in Jude's situation, they were to contend for the holy lifestyle that flows from God's grace in Christ. These are the essentials of the Christian faith, which are non-negotiable. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul wrote that the only foundation for the church is Jesus Christ, and people must build upon that foundation. He said, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care. 
for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. We remain in God's love by continuing to grow in our understanding of the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ, learning and applying the whole counsel of God found within the entirety of Scripture. As we understand God's word better, we know God better, and our love for him increases. Paul tells us the importance of reading and studying the scriptures in Romans 15, verse 4, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. How, Stains Kong, how in the world can we keep Christ's commandments if we do not thoroughly study to know them? And how are we supposed to follow those commandments if we do not work hard to apply them to our daily lives? The teaching of scripture is clear. We must study the word of God. We must crave it. The reading of God's word must be a central part of our Christian faith. That's why we teach and what we learn is extremely important to the health of a church. We need to know what is true. To keep the faith means we'll stand up against what God says is wrong. There is a broad way and a narrow way. There is eternal damnation and eternal life. There is holiness and ungodliness. So pay attention to what's taught in scripture. Pay attention to what other people are telling you. Pay attention to what other people are doing. It's through reading scripture that you will be trained to be able to discern right from wrong, good teaching from false teaching. Now, there are those who spend a great deal of, deal of time arguing for or against something, and there's a place to oppose falsehood, but it should never be at the expense of our personal relationship with God. We must take positive steps to continue in the love of God and not neglect our own spiritual growth. We are not being faithful solely by meeting as church once or twice a week, going to a home group and listening to a sermon. Some don't even do that much. If you're seriously to keep the faith, you must be actively engaged in your own personal relationship with God. Secondly, they're to keep themselves in God's love by praying in the Holy Spirit. Prayer stimulated, guided, and infused by the Spirit, the battle against false teaching is not won by argument. 2 Corinthians 10 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Earnest and continual prayer is absolutely vital if we are to stand properly against those who attempt to distort and lead astray. Our prayer life is a direct reflection of our dependence upon God for help and strength. Our relationship with God is nurtured by prayer. Prayer is an essential part of our faith and our relationship with God. In order to keep ourselves in God's love, we must be prayerfully dependent on him. The prayer Jude mentions here is not prayer that demands our desires from God. It's not prayer that treats God as a divine vending machine. To pray in the Holy Spirit means to pray according to the will of God, his desires and his plans, 
It is prayer that's motivated by God and which seeks his will. What's called on for us is an active prayer life. We are to be people constantly in dialogue with the Father. To pray in the Spirit takes a contrite heart, repentant and humble. To pray in the Spirit takes a heart submitted to God. A heart full of praise and gratitude. A heart concerned with the word and the will of God. To pray in the Spirit means your attitude and approach to God must be in check and proper. To pray in the Spirit requires a heart in tune with God. It's the kind of prayer Paul mentions in Ephesians 6. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Praying at all times in the Spirit, all kinds of prayers, all kinds of requests. But pray also for the Lord's people and pray for those who are fearlessly making known the gospel. Pray for those who will stand up to false teaching. And thirdly, they're to keep themselves in God's love by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. We are to expectantly anticipate and live in light of God's future deliverance. Error is best avoided by a keen expectation of the Lord's return when his mercy will be finally realized and the work of salvation completed. Titus 2 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself are people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. They must keep alive the fire of Christian hope. We will continue to long for the day when Jesus Christ returns. We eagerly await for the day when we will know him more fully. I'll read again what Titus wrote. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We cannot remain in God's love if we immerse ourselves in this world and cease to long for the future perfection before God. Those who take their eyes off their future hope will find their love for God waning. It will become more evident that their real love is for the present age. Therefore, to keep the faith means we will live eagerly awaiting for Jesus to return when he will welcome us into our heavenly home. However, we must also strike the right balance. If too great attention is paid to a future hope, then a Christian tends to become so otherworldly that they are not much use in this world. True Christianity is world-affirming in the sense that it rejoices in God's world as made by him, redeemed by him, to be enjoyed with him. But Christianity is world-denying in the sense that living as though this world is all there is is utterly insane. In the first part of this small letter of Jude, we learn about ungodly people who had slipped into the church. We learned in the midst of this danger that the church must contend 
for the true faith. There was a real danger in the church then, and there's a real danger for us today. If we're not careful, Satan will slither his way into the church and destroy fellowship. I've heard it said that the greatest danger to the church is not persecution. It's not restrictions over our religious freedom. It's not laws that are enacted by government. The greatest danger to the church is not external. It's from within. So Jude gives us his instructions. In verse 17 to 19, they must remember that the apostles predicted that these scoffers would arise. Then in verses 20 to 21, they're to keep themselves in God's love. Firstly, by building themselves up in the most holy faith. Secondly, by praying in the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring eternal life. And now in verse 22 to 23, just in case you think that uh, true faith is just simply nourishing your own spiritual life, Jude here turns to our responsibility for others. They must reach out to those in their community who were affected by the false teaching. And the text seems to suggest three different groups. Firstly, we're to be merciful to those who doubt. There were some who were in the early stages of wavering in their commitment to faith. Those who were in two minds about the false teaching. This group had begun to doubt whether the faith they had been taught was correct. However, those who waver under the influence of false teachers should never be rejected or ignored. Believers should extend mercy to them and be patient with them struggling with their doubts. Showing mercy here does not mean ignoring the seriousness of false teaching, but exhorting them with truth of God's word in love and patience. Someone who's flirting with false teaching is not to be shunned by his Christian friends. They should take a loving approach, have a sense of timing, and a carefully thought out Christian position. These are the qualities that are required. Secondly, we're to save others by snatching them from the fire. There were some who were becoming so persuaded by false teaching that they were in imminent danger of condemnation. Those people who were more deeply involved with the heresy, their position is so serious that they're to be snatched from the fire. They need a direct frontal approach. They are on the wrong path and need to be told as much and then rescued. Perhaps these people have never made a genuine profession of faith, but they might if they were not overly influenced by false doctrine. However, there's still hope that they can be reclaimed, rescued from judgment to come, and put into right relationship with God. Their lives can be saved, and they can be snatched from the fire that threatens to destroy them. It's our duty to watch over each other, and pull back those who, through weakness of faith or understanding, find themselves drawn towards the fire. We need to be concerned for each other, constantly exhorting and helping one another to contend for the faith and remain steadfast in the love of God. And finally, we're to show others, uh, show mercy fixed with, mixed with fear. This third group probably consists of those who followed the false teachers or maybe the false teachers themselves. These people can only be pitied in the spirit of the fear of God and acknowledge that there, for the grace of God, go I. 
And one way to show mercy is to pray for them. But Christians must be extremely cautious when showing mercy to false teachers. They should show mercy mixed with fear because their sins can be enticing. In fact, we're to hate even the clothes that these people wear, which suggests the contaminating effect of their sin. Like the leper whose clothing was polluted by the disease, they're to be seen as a source of pollution and shunned. Indeed, these people and their godless ways must be removed from the flock with urgency and precision before their ungodly ways spread through the entire congregation. But we are always to display love and mercy, even when a brother or sister is caught up in sin. Jude closes his letter with a doxology, a short hymn of praises to God. Now churches frequently use this doxology as a way of closing church services and sending the congregation on their way, primarily because it's one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament. In it, Jude is saying that they must, they must trust God to keep them safe. Jude opened this letter with the following greeting to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Now Jude closes the letter by reminding us that God is able and willing to keep his own from falling away from the faith. False teachers threaten the church, but those who truly belong to the Lord will never surrender. They will keep the faith. Their perseverance is not due to their own strength, for God himself keeps us from falling away. He makes us able to stand before him, blameless and joyful when Christ returns. After the sad possibilities of error and apostasy, Jude ends on a positive note appointing his readers to God and what he can do for us. His goal is to keep us fall from falling to the end of time and present us without fault and great joy into eternity. In view of this, Jude describes all glory and might here and now to God the Saviour whose praises his ransomed people will sing throughout eternity. Ultimately, it's God who preserves Christians in his love. It is God who keeps them from stumbling, from falling away by following the false teachers. It's God who presents them without fault. Based on your own power, you can never appear without fault before God. But God supplies Jesus Christ and the moral purity we lack in ourselves. God is our saviour in that he plans and initiates the process. Of the four qualities Jude describes to God, glory stresses his splendour, majesty his position, power his ability to carry out his sovereign will, and authority the fact that he has the absolute right to do so. These qualities have always been his and always will be. And Jesus is our saviour in that he secures salvation for us. Jesus, Jude reminds us that only through Jesus has God saved us. There's a beautiful tension in scripture of keeping ourselves in the faith and God keeping us faithful to him. God gives us his grace so that we desire to keep ourselves in his love. In these last verses, we read that God is able to keep you from stumbling this doesn't mean that you'll never sin again. God doesn't promise that you'll never sin again. He does promise he will preserve his children from abandoning the faith so that they'll be able to stand before him with great joy. Since God is perfectly faithful, 
supremely powerful and infinitely loving, he will not allow any of his children to be lost. God will complete his saving work he began in you. And because you did nothing to earn salvation, you can do nothing to lose it. However, salvation is not a license to sin or to believe whatever we choose. If it were, then most of what Jude wrote would make no sense. For those who genuinely profess Christ as Lord and Saviour, who are recipients of God's grace and who respond to it with faith, they will never fall away. And because salvation is God's work in you, he alone deserves all the glory and praise, now and forever. Therefore, let us not be Christians in title only. If Jesus is our Lord and Saviour, and we've been saved by his work on the cross, then let us contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to us. And let us keep the faith by cultivating our relationship with God, having mercy on those who fall away, and give glory to God for his work in us and his promise to keep us. This is the good news. This is gospel. Such is our God. Such are his eternal qualities unveiled in Jesus Christ. To him we must come one day and we must render our account. He himself will bring us to him if we let him. And he alone will present us faultless before his presence. And the believing soul can only respond with a humble yet fervent, Amen, so be it. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this letter of Jude. Thank you for the last two weeks where we've had the opportunity to take a look at it, to learn from it, to wrestle with it, Lord. And thank you for the instructions Jude gives his readers then and gives his readers now. Lord, please help us to meditate on these words. Help us to meditate on these instructions. Help us to take them seriously. Lord, in this church, there will be false teachers. There will be people who believe things that just are simply not true. There'll be people that will share those beliefs with others, try to lead them from the straight and narrow path. Lord, I pray, give us the strength to resist. Give us the uh, desire to learn Scripture, all of Scripture, so that we may be able to judge what's right and wrong false and true. Lord, I pray, give us a prayerful life. Give us a relationship with you where we come to speak with you, to share our heart with you, Lord, and you share your heart with us. And Lord, please help us to be merciful to others. Help us watch over each other, but be merciful to those who fall away. Lord, we pray all of these things because you've given us the opportunity to come in prayer through Jesus Christ's blood. So we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.